Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Wow. Rarely we get into so many rabbit holes as in this conversation. So get ready because it's long and rich. How does an ex-Citibank investor find himself in the Pakistan desert to farm more than 600 acres? And we learn all about the mistakes they made and the hard lessons learned, but also how they built one of the largest, if not largest, Johnson & Sue compost facility, plus the largest Fermi compost facility in Pakistan and much more. We cover his journey with Elaine Ingham, John Kempf, Olivier Husson, and of course, Judith Swartz, and his interest in drones and spraying, of course, biology. And what about water? We talk inputs, outputs, and why the timing is now for a regenerative transition in Pakistan and beyond. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Welcome to another episode today with the founder of Drawdown Farm, an integrated regenerative farming system in the Tal Desert in Pakistan. Welcome, Taymour. Thank you very much, Korn. Thank you for having me. And you listen to the podcast, so you know the drill and you know the first question. Uh, and I know in this case, I mean, all of our guests have a fascinating story, obviously, uh, but this is definitely uh, one of them. So how did you end up focusing on soil and how did you end up uh, founding Drawdown Farm, because that wasn't uh, really what you spent your professional life on doing, let's say. Uh, absolutely. Far from it. Uh, I don't come from an agricultural uh, family at all. Um, my sort of uh, parents and their parents, etc., have been urbanites for a very, very long time uh, in South Asia. Um, I uh, used to be, uh, you know, I used to work on Wall Street at Citibank. Um, and I got to this um, in a moment of considerable mental, uh, let's say stress, but probably depression would be the better word for it. Um, I, in 2015, I was blessed with my first child um, and my uh, first son Tahir was born, uh, which is a you know, great blessing, really happy uh, moment. But what had happened was, you know, a few months before he was born, while we were still expecting him, um, I discovered something 
that now, of course, uh, everybody knows about climate change. But at the time, uh, that was pretty big news. And, you know, I went to a university that houses um, some, you know, a lot of people of uh, uh, the caliber of Jeffrey Sachs. Um, and so, you know, sustainable development, climate change was something that was, uh, you know, you would think would be front and center. Uh, but in the time that I was there from 2007 to 2011, uh, climate change is something that never came up uh, in any real meaningful conversation at the university at all. Uh, in fact, in 2010, when the devastating floods happened in Pakistan, nobody connected it at the time to climate change, which we now do. We have attribution science, which says that, you know, that was the major cause wow. for those devastating floods. that's only 13 floods. years ago. That's crazy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which, which left 20 million people homeless. Um, I mean, it was really devastating with a capital D. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I suddenly found out about this, it was really depressing, depressing stuff and sort of I have a habit of going down rapid holes and that's going to come up again and again <laughs> in our conversation today. Um, and I went down this really grim rabbit hole. I read uh, Bill McKibben's Earth. That's E double A R T H, and it just blew my mind. Um, you know, and and all of the science that Jim Hansen has been uh, talking about, which now again has become quite, uh, in, at least in some circles, very famous because the accuracy of his testimony to the U.S. Congress in I think 1988, um, and things have really happened pretty much exactly how he said they would. Um, and he's considered the greatest climate scientist that the human species has ever produced. Um, so, you know, all of that stuff was really grim. Then I happened to discover that the around about the same time, a few months later, something called the sixth mass extinction, because we had that book as well, which is a really incredible read. Grim, but really, really good. Um, and all of those things were sort of gestating in my head. And then, you know, all of these changes were happening in my life. Uh, I sort of was blessed with uh, being a father. Uh, but then Do you remember what triggered that? I mean, what, what triggered, because you've gone to one of the best schools in the world, um, probably reading the proper newspapers, uh, magazines, etc. How, how did, what triggered the climate change rabbit hole? Like what opened it up, let's say, because it must have been around you all the time. You just didn't see it or you just didn't fall into it. What, what, was there an article? Was there a movie? Was there a poster? Was there, no, Extinction Rebellion wasn't there yet. But what was the, the, the slap in your face, let's say? Yeah, I mean, none of these things, none of these great organizations, the Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, et cetera, et cetera, none of them were there. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned you were reading the, night, or the right papers. And, you know, I, I did believe at the time that we live in financial times, as a salmon-colored paper likes to say, but there was no climate capital section, which has become quite popular. And I'm referring to the financial times, um, considered by many to be the best newspaper in the world. And, you know, none of this love, stuff was there. I love there. their weekend one, how to spend it. Yeah, that's it. Uh... Yeah, how to spend it fascinating. Separation between Friday and Saturday. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. What was the rabbit hole? Um, so I actually, to be honest with you, don't remember what that first okay. article was. But I do remember then that I started finding all of this stuff in the Washington Post, in New York Times, but it was just on like page 18. I discovered this quote years later, which was that the best stuff in the New York Times is usually on page 18 or something like that, you know. Uh, so it's, it's so suddenly you saw it everywhere. You saw like, like when you buy a red car, suddenly you start seeing everybody seems to have a, a red car. And... So six mass extinction, exactly. sorry, that, that was another grim, very grim one. So, but you started to go into 
let's say the, the biological space or or the life space and biodiversity space with with that rabbit hole or that part of the rabbit hole Yes, that happened later, actually. So climate was um, very much front and center in the beginning. Um, then, so there were life changes happening, as I mentioned, fatherhood and the burdens of fatherhood. You know, you've brought life into the world. And then you start questioning the fact that we're actually, seems like we're not really going to survive. Is Was that the most senseless uh, thing that I've ever done? Uh, you know, and, and that that's a very heavy question to have hanging uh, over your uh, head like a sword of Democles, um, and it really wasn't a fun space to be in. And then there were other life changes. We decided, me, my wife and I, to move to Pakistan. Uh, at this time, we were in New York, um, and an opportunity came up uh, for me to take the reins of a textile spinning mill. And for those uh, in the audience who might not know, a spinning mill is one of the earliest stages of making uh, sort of clothes um, and other cotton products, and that's when you make thread. So this was a coarse count spinning mill. Uh, so relatively coarser thread that's used in things like towels, denim uh, manufacturing, things like that. Um, and I knew nothing about textiles, but I was like, you know what, uh, you know, I have the um, I guess with experience uh, in finance, uh, you know, you, you know about the business side of things. And uh, that was, I guess, why I was uh, hired as well. Uh, but as luck would have it, uh, here we are, we've done this big move, which in itself was, you know, had its challenges. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm in a new job in a space I know very little about. Um, and then, uh, lo and behold, the mill shuts down pretty soon after I uh, joined. <laughs> and, um, and that was also sort of, you know, a pretty uh, devastating thing for the economy. Um, and it was very disturbing for me from a macro uh, economy point of view, because tens of thousands of people were losing their jobs because mills all over the country were closing down. And the core reason for that was um, that the cotton price in Pakistan that year had dramatically escalated. It had, uh, the country had lost about 33% of its crop uh, by a pest called the pink ballworm. And that's basically how I started getting into agriculture and biology. Because I had this fundamental question, again, it's always about, you know, I try to probe deeper. What is the reason? For a lot of people, they just accepted it. Oh, the farmers did a boo-boo, or it's just bad luck. We had more pest pressures this year. How do we overcome this? Um, on a very, in a very narrow way, that's what how most textile managers were thinking. And of course, I had to think about it in the narrow way. How do we reduce costs? How do we, you know, uh, better our energy efficiency? And we worked on all of those things at the time, you know, getting our entire mill, um, LED lights, things like that. We started working on a bunch of those types of things as well, you know, the micro. But on a macro level, it just wasn't sitting well with me um, because uh, I thought that the, if this is going to happen regularly or semi-regularly for an economy that is entirely dependent on textile exports to stay afloat, because that is by far maybe something like 80% of Pakistani exports are textiles. And the economy would collapse if the country is unable to meet its, you know, sort of exports uh, or export targets. And and then the, the the impacts on jobs and families, on food security, all of those things is just so profound. So I started really getting deeper into why this happened. And I discovered that Pakistan uses a genetically modified seed called BT cotton. And basically what Monsanto did was they inserted the Bacillus thuringiensis bacterium into the gene of this BT, cotton seed. Yeah. 
the BT exactly, and the BT is toxic to insects. So interestingly enough, what some people don't know is that, and obviously you would, is that BT is one of the original organic pesticides because it's just a microbe. And if you apply it as like a foliar, um, it kills pests, but it doesn't create the kind of systemic resistance that happens when you insert it in the gene. And that's what happened here. Over time, the pink ballworm in the beginning, it was extremely toxic to the pink ballworm. But evolution always wins. And the pink ballworm developed a resistance over the years. And when I of discovered course, the evolution biology, always I, wins, yeah. Exactly. So that was the big light bulb moment for me because growing up, I was not like a science buff. Um, I didn't enjoy it as much. I was the kind of kid who was really into like things like current affairs and I would be reading endlessly on like world history. But science was never something that enthused me. Um, But this was really, uh, you know, it's the curiosity here that sort of was the hook. And uh, and that's how I got into sort of the biology side of things. So then I was perturbed by the system because what happens is in the GM realm is that a seed starts failing because usually because of evolutionary resistance to weeds, insects, whatever. And then a newer iteration comes that's even more toxic. And we're seeing this with super weeds as well, where you have uh, after glyphosate resistance, you have like dicamba and so many other types of uh, uh, GM modified um, seeds that are coming into the market and will continue to do so because evolution always wins. So I was like, is there an alternative system uh, or model or are we doomed into this sort of cycle um, where every new iteration is more expensive, it's harder for farmers to meet it, and it really impacts economic security? Um, and lo and behold, um, as I started, so, you know, one of the things that I was exposed to living in New York, or had the privilege of being exposed to was organic foods. And organic foods, um, you know, intuitively, everyone can understand that, look, pesticides are toxic. You just look at the warning labels. And therefore, food grown without synthetic pesticides is bound to be healthier for you just based on the fact that it doesn't have those toxins on them. So, you know, however much uh, I could sort of patronize, I would try to get, you know, organic fruits and vegetables at least while I was living in New York. Uh, And I was exposed to this, but they were more expensive, usually on average about 30% more. And so I sort of just based on the price tags, I assume that organic always means the cost of production is much higher and we cannot feed the world that way. It's a privilege for the few. Uh, But as I... Uh, researched and researched. And so I started looking at organic cotton. How does organic cotton do it? Is it possible? And I discovered, oh, look, India is the largest organic cotton producer in the world and Turkey is the second largest. So then I started looking at how the farm is doing it there. Um, I discovered a very fascinating study out of an Indian state called Madhya Pradesh. And this study was done by a local ag university. And they looked at data for side-by-side farmers in Madhya Pradesh who were certified organic versus their neighbors, literally side-by-side farmers who were still doing BT cotton GMO seed. And the results they came with were really surprising for me. Ten years later, the organic farmers had higher yields than their GMO counterparts. Oh, whoa, whoa, Let whoa, me whoa, repeat. Whoa, whoa. Higher <laughs> Now we're getting, we're going from like high on high here and, uh, and like we're, we're diving the deep end in, in terms of GM. And now we're talking about higher yields. Um, after a transition period, that's, I think, the, the, the crucial piece here. And of course, exactly. well, probably well helped. Um, but the yields are definitely possible. That's what you're seeing in cotton, at least. And we know that in other places because you studied the, because I think that's where you're going 
um, with your your piece also on organic produce. It's not necessarily the production costs. It's the system that comes after it that dictates the, the premium. Exactly. Uh, to a large extent. Um, and those premiums, by the way, before, you know, we had this inflation uh, Armageddon of the past uh, couple of years, the cleavage between in many parts of the world, uh, including developed countries, the cleavage between organic and inorganic was significantly reducing. Um, and there are theses of uh, investment in private equity firms that are doing more regenerative investments, such as um, agriculture capital management, uh, which is that that cleavage, so their organic blueberries, they're like, it's part of their thesis, that cleavage they expect ultimately will disappear. But the cost side of theirs is lower, so the thesis still bears out for them. And we'll get into that. And even with transition, by the way, so initially I, I came to the conclusion that with transition, there is a heavy cost. But I don't believe that now. You can actually get start getting, depending on the systems that are being deployed for conventional uh, and depending what part of the world you are. But in countries in the global south with poor soils, you can actually start to get alpha from day one and we're going to talk about that and that's a big component yeah, of my thesis i think yeah. shout out to to take love grounded um they've seen that as well in in sub-saharan africa east africa like you, the the starting point in terms of soil uh, life and health and productivity is is relatively low and but also the addiction to um heavy chemicals etc is relatively low so you can actually kickstart it very quickly and from year one um, have or even season one or growing season whatever have a massive impact but we hear the same honestly from from john kemp that says if in year one we're not performing and our farmers are not making more money we have done something wrong and it's bad agronomy so there's there's a uh, which is an interesting sales uh, strategy of course but very like it's just bad agronomy if you if you have a very heavy transition period. Not saying everywhere that's the case. There are caveats, etc. But it's definitely possible to uh, to get results very very quickly. One million percent. And John Kemp has had a huge uh, sort of impact on my own thinking. His what I call precision. I don't think that's how they call it, but I call it precision regenerative agriculture. And I think it's revolutionary. Um, and due to and we'll, we'll we'll get into the weeds of that as well, if you'd like. There are some family health issues that have propped up over the past many years. I lost my own father to brain cancer when I was in college. Um, so I've always had a huge interest in nutrition, human nutrition side of things as well. And enzyme cofactors for all of the so all of biology runs on enzymes doing different things and not having those cofactors is uh, is a recipe for disaster and that's the case for uh, biological systems in agriculture. So, you know, the crops we're growing, plants, and then it's also the case for humans. Um, and so the similarities are incredible. Um, and, and that's why precision science is so important. Um, and I agree with John Kempf that it's not just, you know, microbiology that is the only solution. Because, you know, me and my team were trained now in the Elaine Ingham Soil Food Web system as well. Um, and, and that's an incredible system, uh, without a doubt. But I, I like the synthesis, which is why I use the term integrative, where, you know, using precision nutrients in the right form, in the right place at the right time. And we'll get into the details of that is also really important. But going so back just, to your content. Uh, yeah, sorry. To the, to the story, yes, exactly. Just wrapping that up. Um, so that just blew my mind, the Madhya Pradesh study, because that was the first time in my life I discovered this idea that organic and biological agriculture could be more profitable and could be higher yielding. And this 
this entire story that we've been fed that organic cannot feed the world is completely well, hogwash. Um, and again, you're giving me so many perfect titles for this uh, for this interview already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and then so, what happens after uh, that? Because it cannot stay with what? Because you're curious, you go deeper, you think potentially that's just one study. Maybe it's only cotton. Probably not. It's all biology. But still, like, where do you go after that? I go into a series of rabbit holes upon rabbit holes. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I discover you know, all sorts of research, whether it's Carlo Leifert in the UK that organic produces 40 times more antioxidants or, you know, so everything from nutrient density to even yields. In fact, there was a UMISH study I then discovered soon after, which um, said that in the global south, transition to organic can actually lead to higher yields as well in many cases. And they did a crop by crop analysis for the crops that they had data for. So this was a meta study. And again, sort of was feeding into what I had just learned. So with each new day, I was learning new things, which were just blowing my mind. So we'll put then all of these studies hunger, in, the, in the description, in the show notes below. People don't, sure, don't have to take yeah. notes. We'll, we'll put everything down there. Uh, sounds great. Um, and so, you know, I was just uh, obsessed with this stuff and just the hope. And then, of course, the Rodale study was a key because remember, at the back of my mind, climate change was a huge uh, pain point for me, for my mental health. And then I discovered the, the version 1.0 Rodale study that organic agriculture can take all the excess carbon in the atmosphere and put it in the soils and we can reverse climate change if just 50% of global ag lands transitioned. And now they call it regenerative organic um, after you know the founding of the ROA and so on, uh, which is the regenerative organic alliance for those listeners who might not know. And so, um, you know, that again was just hugely inspirational. And then I was just like, you know, beyond obsessed. So then because there was until just then, one... you didn't really connect it to, to carbon yet, right? Maybe to the yes, carbon no, piece no. of less fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, fossil fuel based fertilizer, like less input based, but more, you were much more on the yield and, and land, but not necessarily like this could be a very important, if not the most important lever or lever in terms of climate. Exactly. It must and have been a that, good day when you found that study. Yeah. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> good day and then bad in the sense that I was like, this is what I want to do right now, right here, right now. Uh, only one tinsy little problem is that I don't have any agricultural land. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I started. So then, you know, what also had happened was that my um, father-in-law, who's a very uh, you know dynamic, a lovely human being, and a very dynamic person, he um, has a hobby for agriculture. So he's a captain of industry, actually, in Pakistan. Uh, but he has a hobby for agriculture because ancestrally, his family for hundreds of years were, were, were in the farming profession and the farming business. And so what he'd done was that, and of course, with time, you know, those lands sort of get smaller and smaller and smaller. But as a captain of industry, he had the ability and privilege to buy up land. And he bought it. So he's from southern Punjab. And the Thal Desert is in the southern Punjab province of Pakistan as well. And so close to where he his ancestral roots are, he started buying up really cheap land in the Thal Desert in the starting in the 1990s. Um, and it was really cheap uh, land because it's just pure desert soil. But like uh, with sorry, a sorry, plan? Pure desert sand. There is no like, like with a plan well, or plan, like knowing of, yeah. that the something plan. would come up at some point? Like... 
I think it's, uh, you know, uh, President Eisenhower, well, General Eisenhower used to say, the plan changes on the first day of battle. Uh, and so I think <laughs> there was a bit of an original plan of a eucalyptus plantation because somebody was setting up a factory for, for paper, uh, for making paper, and eucalyptus was uh, is great feed for that. It grows really quickly. And this is a species of eucalyptus, a varietal called Eucalyptus camaldulensis, which is everywhere in Pakistan. Um, it was brought over in the 1960s uh, from Australia. and um, But that plan sort of didn't pan out really. So then, you know, farming of other things began. And it was all very experimental. It was, you know, a, a sort of a hobby, a, a passion, a side passion, because obviously that was not, not nearly his main uh, sort of profession by any stretch. Um, and so he, uh, you know, uh, very kindly invited me to come and visit uh, his farmlands with him. And so that happened as well. And that got me thinking because I was do, you know, doing all this research as well. So then I started pitching to him. What if we take, and he has a few different uh, pieces of farmland that are relatively close to each other, usually about 15, 20 minute drive from each other. So I asked him, what if we take one of these parcels and we converted to this new, these newfangled ideas that I've been reading about, this like regenerative. By then, I'd also discovered the term regenerative. So, you know, this more organic, regenerative, biological type of agriculture. And in the beginning, you know, so it took a few conversations. How did that it was go? Just too because good. what is his response as a captain of industry that has seen farming, but potentially also escaped that or has seen the not working of farming, I think, in many cases? I don't think it's... Um, he has come across regenerative. Like, what what does somebody in that position respond to a son-in-law basically pitching, "Let's go and do regen organic in in one of these plots"? Yeah, so it was too. You know, this the thesis is too good to be true. Like, uh, you know, he he was. I'm pretty sure he was unconvinced by this. Uh, factoid that organic agriculture yields can be the same or even higher. Um, he's like, if you that say, look, were the I have case, a paper, I have a paper, man. and he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's like, you know, is the world mad? How come nobody has? You know, he didn't say it in so many words, but I could, you know, read his eyes. Like, why wouldn't the entire world have converted? You know, these Western countries are so much cleverer. Like, you know, they're always onto the new cutting edge science. How is it possible? Um, you know, but. I think that, and then of course I was given the climate change arguments as well, and for you know for the sake of your grandchildren, and you know so on and so forth. Ah, you, um, you push the right so buttons. Think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a thorough gentleman, so I think that he um, he's like you know there's no harm in doing uh, this experimentation. Um, this is a hobby anyway, so let's 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 do a little bit of this. Um, and so on one of his farmlands, he uh, very kindly uh, agreed to. Uh, give me the reins uh, and to sort of implement these practices, which again I uh, must thank him for. It was mighty generous of him, and uh, and that's when it began. And of course, as luck would have it, have it in the first uh, couple of years, we uh, disappointed him <laughs> greatly. <laughs> he never said it, but uh, uh, disappointed ourselves really, uh, because this stuff was really hard. I mean, making compost 
without knowing the science of it um, was really, really hard. And we probably made some, not probably, I'm pretty certain we made some really bad bacterially dominant composts. And then we went cold turkey, no fertilizers. And that was a recipe for disaster. Um, and of course, uh, I would never do that. And, and people who I mentee now, farmers, uh, you know, I always tell them, never go cold turkey in the beginning. It's a gradual process. Um, and But you'll get there and you'll start seeing really high yields or, or better yields, a better productivity and performance from season one, from, you know, crop number one. But just to get paint the picture, cold. you were still managing the mill or that it would have closed at that time already? Or like you didn't, hopefully you didn't have to live off the farm like from day one, because if you had the first few years of horrible results that that that's the scary transition most farmers that are on very thin margins are scared of so uh, you were this was a hobby on the side as well or you were full in but you had some savings like how did you manage that transition for yourself yeah that, that that's a really good question so i stayed on in the mill for uh for about um a year uh also a little bit less but you know ultimately i, I left that was my day job for a bit um and sort of devoted myself more full time to this but Having said that, uh, the farm on the farmland itself, we didn't convert the whole thing. Uh, and so these disastrous results were just on little pieces. So, for example, if we have a center pivot that's uh, growing 100 acres of sugarcane, and sugarcane is the, you know, was the mandate, it's the largest acreage on the farm even today, because that's the mandate, because one of the principal businesses of my father-in-law is sugar milling. Uh, and um, And so, you know, we grow cane that goes to the mills as well. I mean, it's a very tiny percentage of the overall milling that they do, but, you know, it's one of the things, one of my father-in-law's passions became growing high-quality sugarcane and then making it um, a sort of research as well into how we can grow better cane and then work with the farmers to help them as well. So, you know, on this 100 acres, for example, patch, we did a five-acre trial without fertilizers, just compost and things, and obviously that was a disaster. And that was the first searing lesson that in these really poor soils with really high nitrogen deficiency, you have to have some nitrogen in the system. And we can get into, you know, more granular details of what that looks like and what some clever fermentation strategies are to get the right amount of nitrogen in like micro doses. Um, even if it's synthetic, if you ensconce it in biology, and this is what John Kemp says as well, you can dramatically reduce its negative and deleterious impacts, uh, but you can get the nitrogen the plant needs. So I've now changed my opinion on urea uh, quite significantly um, compared to you know a few years ago. Uh, I'm obviously extremely opposed to um, you know all the biocides, but I think urea can be quite useful in micro doses in the right forms, especially in the beginning as farms transition and move to from conventional to regenerative. Ultimately, they can go to regenerative organic, um, but it's a process. Unless you have organic sources of nitrogen, which are available, or unless Kula Bio becomes the norm globally, uh, <laughs> until you have something like that, you need urea, but you just need much less of it. And there are clever ways of delivering it, which farms aren't doing. So, you know, farmers like the Dutch farmer protests, for example, when the EU said by 2030, we need to reduce nitrogen fertilizers by, I don't know, what is it, 50% or something like that. Um, that's unfortunate because the media doesn't highlight 
you know, cutting edge science. And we'll, we'll get into that. Same with Sri Lanka, like the story about how organic failed Sri Lanka and the sensationalization was just so bad. Um, and it really set the movement backwards, the regenerative movement. Um, and I was just very disappointed with the New York Times. I'm disappointed generally with the New York Times. It's <laughs> but, but that was yet another testament, like just the sensationalist headline that they had for on, on Sri Lanka when that was happening was just, you know, Really yeah, headlines beating. need to sell, and and the Dutch farmers' protest. I mean, being Dutch, uh, like it's it's very interesting to see those movements and see, in terms of the Dutch farmers' protest, nothing against the farmers protesting, but definitely against the ones that set it up and paid for it, which are agrochemical companies in the Netherlands. They're not even hiding it. Like that's. And also the farmers' <laughs> party that now, no, no, actually the last election not won so much, but before, like, it's not a farmers' party; it's an agrochemical party, like literally set up by, um, not not even hiding the fact that they've been set up by by the input guys and girls, which is fine. Like they need to protect their um, their their business, which I understand, but it's definitely not cutting edge science. And the cutting edge farmers are way beyond that. But if yeah, if you put some tractors on a, on a highway. Um, it, it gets a lot of attention and gets some easy headlines like, oh, the farmers are urban. Like, yeah, not really. They're, they are, but they're pushed by and there's somebody scared of, of these regulations, which have to be put in place because we have been overusing it for, for century, not for centuries, for a long time. And there will be other regulation coming on water quality, air quality. Like it's not, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. So you better like figure out the cutting edge piece and what you're going to do about it. Or otherwise we keep being in that cycle, like you mentioned with, with BT cotton, just the next one will come out, which is going to be even more expensive and more toxic and the next one and the next one and the next one. And where's that going to end? I mean, we know it's going to end. There's no more cotton. Like that's the no more farmers growing cotton. And so yeah, exactly. it's just very frustrating for yeah the headline media to, to grasp that depth, I think. And the same with Sri Lanka. And, and I read the reports on not what really happened, but like the nuances there and, and, it's it's a very different story. I'm not gonna say conspiracy theories, etc. It's just much easier in a headline story to put a headline and a few paragraphs and just follow the um, the easiest story because otherwise people have to go to page 18 to get the real one, and that's just too far for most <laughs> for most ones. So you were experimenting there, and like, when did you feel like I, I'm imagining you get more desperate and hopeless almost like in this situation I'm, I'm painting the hero story here but like at some point you feel like hey we got something here that actually works even on fear like we we made a few horrible mistakes but we at least understand why and how and and when did you feel like okay we 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 start to slowly get a bit of grip have a bit of grip of the situation what we're dealing with here and there might be actually possibilities to to grow sugarcane in a regenerative way of with practices that lead to like was there because how long did this did this desert of of hope, hopelessness last? Let's say. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think that it lasted probably about a couple of years because you know things. So actually, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag uh, because the horrible failures were happening for row crops like sugarcane I mentioned and even some wheat trials um, where the yields were lower. But actually, for our uh, fruit trees, they weren't doing 
so poorly or just compost. And so we have, uh, just to give a brief overview of our farm, it's a very diverse farm. It's about 600 acres. We have center pivots where we predominantly grow sugarcane, but we also um, sometimes grow other crops like silage, maize, and of course we have cover crops and things like that. We'll talk about that, but that's primarily usually after the cane harvest, we do a cover crop before the next cane is planted. Um, And then we have orchards of uh, different citrus varieties, sweet limes. We have orchards of various mangoes varieties. We have some uh, grazing zones. Um, we are now doing some other experimental crops, oil seeds. Um, uh, we're thinking of potatoes, and we'll, we can talk about each of those as well. So it's very diverse, and what sort of things feed into uh, each other. At least that's the idea and the design flow of it. Um, and we're also trying to bring in as much um, diversity if we can't do it from a crops point of view while growing it. So we're uh, we're increasingly trying to do intercrops and we're also bringing in agroforestry systems, whether it's shrub-based agroforestry systems like leguminous shrubs, sometimes trees, although there are issues with trees, um, you know, in in our setting, you know, but uh, we can talk about some of those things as well. So um, we were seeing that our fruit trees weren't doing too poorly, and we were just getting better and better with compost. Initially, our compost were drying out a lot, so then we created sprinkler systems to keep them sort of moist enough, because in the desert, when it gets really hot in the summers, um, it's just you know, uh, the compost was just drying out too quickly and then it was becoming hydrophobic. Um, and, you know, so we, with each iteration, we were just doing things better and better. So it wasn't, you know, one failure meant that we're just keeping things static. It was a constant evolution. But I think that a lot of uh, the learnings out of John Kempf, whose podcast I, again, religiously would, would be listening to and just following, you know, and then Dr. Elaine Ingham created the Soul Food Web School and just learning about that. And then also learning, and our mutual good friend, Judith, Judith Schwartz, introduced uh, me to um, the Johnson Sue composting system. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shout out to, today, to Johnson and Sue and shout to, out to absolutely, Judith. Yeah. I, absolutely. I've met uh, Professor Johnson and Sue as well, and they're fantastic, really amazing human beings. Um, and today we might have the largest Johnson Sioux bioreactor operation in the world. Uh, we have about 250 large uh, bioreactors. So, you know, this is a modified bioreactor. This is much bigger than the original one. So this is a system that actually was invented by, or to my knowledge, by a person called... Um, uh, Forgetting his name, he has a YouTube channel. Oh my God! It's uh, anyway something foot, uh, Diego Diego uh, foot, and so um, you know it's a, it's a more modified, larger version. So you can you have higher volume, um, and so Johnson was you know a game changer. Uh, and you know first we built like one or two reactors, and the results we got, and it's a year long gestation period, so it's a very long wait, but the results we got from that were just mind blowing. Um, and very quickly we realized, and then of course we were, we started the Soul Food Web School began. I got myself and my team trained in that, and then we discovered the science of fungally dominant composts. On and you were like, ah, that's why our compost didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, why exactly. the biology. Yeah. Ever, yeah. 
exactly. So the power of fungi uh, was uh, was a real sort of story of hope. Um, we started using, I started getting from abroad some uh, mycorrhizal fungi uh, inoculants, which were also sort of helpful. Um, so we started doing, you know, these systemic changes. And then, you know, it was... Uh, just aggregating one thing on top of another, on top of another. As we were learning more and more things, then we started doing bioferments. We started I- incorporating some KNF techniques, Korean natural farming, certain fermentation techniques. Um, we started making you know, many of our own. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. A lot of our own amendments, you know, fish hydrolysis. So uh, the problem solving part of it was overwhelming. Even when we had failure, any sort of, you know, negative mental health aspects because the problem solving kick is unbelievable. It's unexplainable. There is no other thing in the world that gives you this kick. And just a few days ago, one of your latest podcast episodes with the German uh, venture capitalist uh, whose young name is, is escaping me. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And he said that. Exactly. And he said, and I love this quote, he said, my thesis is that the smartest people are increasingly going to go into agriculture and forestry um, because it's just the high that you get from resolving problems. It's there's nothing like it. And working. And, in and so how many years are you in it now? Like just to, to fast forward to, let's say we're at the end of 2023 in, in this calendar. I mean, depending how you're, you count your calendar. Um, I don't want to exclude anybody. What what would you give us an overview of, of if we would walk the land? I mean, unfortunately, we have to do this remotely. I mean, you're not on the farm right now. Uh, we will do this uh, hopefully at some point in person if we would, would like as a small drone, maybe overview the land. What do you see right now? What are um, things that, that we should as a regenerative focused podcast should really notice? Um, I think the greenery would be something that would be quite apparent from the drones. Um, and part of it is shout out to my father-in-law as well, because when he bought the land on many of the sort of pathways, they started planting trees. Uh, and then we've escalated that um, since I got involved as well. And we've added thousands and thousands of trees and we plan to add tens of thousands more or hundreds of thousands even actually uh we've built a tiny forest a miyawaki forest and we're expanding it the idea is to make the largest miyawaki forest on a farm in the world to our knowledge and we hope that somebody beats us because that's (laughs) that's exactly what we want um so we want to make a two acre miyawaki forest but then also have other tiny forests strewn across but then we're doing just side note uh, what is a miyawaki forest Absolutely. That's so. Uh, Japanese uh, botanist who just passed away, I think maybe a year ago uh, or a, a couple of years ago, uh, Akira Miyawaki. He created a system of afforestation, which is now uh, commonly known as the Miyawaki uh, method. And in this method, you plant three to four trees per square meter. So it's extremely dense. You use native tree varieties, um, and you. Uh, harness the power of biology in an extraordinarily clever way and actually sort of show that humans as a keystone species who are stewards can actually do good (laughs) for a change. Um, So if there's a manifestation of that, uh, you know, one of them is certainly the Miyawaki forest. Miyawaki forests, when when you do these very dense plantations, and a forest, by the way, can be a tiny forest. In this case, it could be 
30 um, uh, sort of square meters is how small you can make it. And then upwards, it can be acres as well. It's extraordinarily dense. You have so many trees planted together. And that competition, but no two trees are planted together because that's not good. But when you have all of these different varieties of trees planted together, uh, the, there's competition and cooperation happening at the same time in this very mutualistic kind of way. And what that does is that the trees grow really fast because they need light. So they need to grow vertically very quickly to capture that light. And, and they, the, it really speeds up the process of growth very significantly. So in 10 years, you can have a forest as tall as what in nature would take 100 years. Um, so it's a very wow. clever strategy. From your Wall Street um, times, that's 10x. Yeah. That's it, exactly. And then biodiversity apparently is even higher. It's like 40x. Wow. Um, so I'll put some in below. It, yeah, there's a New York Times article. Um, he died 93 exactly. indeed uh, in 2001. Um, but I will put something below because this, you need to see this. You need to you need to walk through it. Maybe um, I'll, I'll try to find a YouTube video or something to make it visual because to describe it and not see it, like, I think you need to to see the, the pure power of biology, which is like on tiny, but definitely also on larger scale. Wow. And and sorry, we, we, let's go back to the drone. You see a lot more green than you would see maybe X years ago, 10 years ago, etc. And what else is really apparent for, for let's say, the, the regen-focused eye? Um... What else is really apparent from a drone? I think that uh, the greenery would probably be the main thing and the stock contrast to the desert landscape around it. I think that would be uh, a key sort of thing that would be apparent from a drone. When when you're on boots on the ground, you'll get to see a lot more things. You'll get to hear birds and see some of the most stunning birds that you probably didn't think were possible. I didn't know they that would be possible in a desert. Uh, things like the Indian roller, the greater kuka. You know, it's a long list um, at this point, uh, which again, uh, all of this stuff also created a side hobby for me, which is ornithology, which I share with my uh, sons as well. And we found this incredible book called Birds of Pakistan, which is a WWF-sponsored project very long time ago. And uh, some of the best ornithologists in the world came and mapped out all of the birds in Pakistan. So I keep that in uh, in my hand when I'm on the farm because there's always a new bird. Um, you know, gray francolins, like you name it. Um, and, and it's incredible. And so you get to see this biodiversity. You get to see ladybugs and all manners of stunning insects and butterflies. You'll get to see the largest honeybee in the world that has made these massive uh, hives. So it's called... Um, the Apis dorsata. It is the largest honeybee on our planet. Um, and, you know, thankfully, knock on wood, we've been able to create uh, this haven for the Apis dorsata. Um, and they've made these huge sort of D-shaped hives. Uh, and you'll see them across the farm, you know, on mulberry trees, eucalyptus trees, etc. So all of that biology will be really apparent if you're walking through the farm. Um, and I, you know, would love to have you there, Hopefully one day we can maybe do an episode at the farm as well. But otherwise, you know, always most welcome to just come and chill. And how do you, I'm going to get to water in a second because I'm sure some people are thinking, yeah, you must be drilling up a lot. You must be like compared to the desert around, but we'll get to that in a second. What, if he's still 
uh, there with you. Um, what does your father-in-law think now or thought now, depending on, on uh, where he is now? What, what does he, when he walks the land, if he's still able, um, what, what does he think of your, your regenerative hobby? But this is way more than that, obviously now, um, as we yeah. speak, what is he, what is he seen? What does he think? Does he like birds? Because that would help. He likes birds. He loves trees. He says that, and I love this quote by him. Um, he says that the trees are the, I'm trying to translate this word. Um, Ronak is the Urdu word he uses, but like they are the life and joy uh, of a farm. Uh, and so he's, you know, uh, and I love that he loves, uh, you know, trees, but I'll give you a couple of examples. So recently he was on, uh, a tour of, uh, you know, this farming operation, you know, it's all, uh, he has, as I mentioned, multiple sort of farmland pieces. And so when he was on this farm, uh, in Rahimabad, he saw our large vermicomposting operation. So we also have, the largest vermicomposting operation now in Pakistan. Um, and, you know, he just was looking at the quality of the vermicompost and he really enjoyed himself. So he asked the overall um, sort of farm manager, you know, why aren't we doing this on all of our farmland? And the, the farm manager, he's the overall general manager for all the farms, uh, Mr. Asif. And he says, uh, well, we always do our experiments here at Rahimabad first. And then if they succeed, we take them to the other farms. And he's like, well, it's quite clear that this has succeeded. <laughs> so, so, you know, you and that for? was, you know. Yeah. Exactly. So that was a great vote of confidence for us. Then he saw our brand new built compost tea room. So we made this room where we created permanent structures. You created that are like, brewing. The, the, like the Disneyland for region farmers there in the desert. Like this is at scale that very few people have, let alone put together. Like all of these are the largest acts, the largest acts, right? and they're all in the same prop and like in the same property. Yeah, I'm uh, very privileged to have been able to do this. Really, it's uh, it's a great gift. Um, there've been a, there's been a lot of toil, sweat, blood, and tears, uh, but you know we've gotten to a place where the stuff is working, it's showing results. We've been able to scale things up from tiny experiments, making them bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it's we've been at this for seven years at this point, um, and so it's taken time, but uh, we've Which learned is sort a lot of the, 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 the magical seven years. I think many people like. I don't want to say biggest little farm, uh, per se, but also others, like it seems like this, this cycle of seven years is needed to, to start getting some, some grounded and getting, getting results in and getting, um, yeah, get a bit of clarity of the future. I don't know why, but it's fascinating. We're seven years into the podcast, actually. So that might be an interesting piece. Mm, Not that nice. we know what we're doing, but that's something else. Um, so you're okay. So your father-in-law definitely sees the potential and does he see? Because his farms are hobbies, but does he see like the financial side now as well, or the entrepreneurial potential now? Is that um, a, a bridge you have crossed or, or a discussion you've had with him? Absolutely. I think that uh, it started off as a hobby, but now it's not a hobby for him. Um, and it's not just because of the work that we've done, but generally he's very bullish about the thesis for farming. Um, and this is uh, across Pakistan, this has happened, although he obviously recognized this before. But in the past year and a half, I've seen a sea change in Pakistani mindsets. Um, agriculture was never talked about by uh, government. It was always about 
um, you know, industrialization, um, you know, the highest echelons of government and the economic thinkers. That's all they were thinking about. Even though now, textile was such an important piece, or then the industry, like the textile processing piece, maybe got much more attention. Industry part, exactly. The industry part was getting far more intention, uh, you know, sort of focus. The energy part was getting some focus, which is very important, by the way. Pakistan has botched its energy, much like it's botched its agriculture. But agriculture is botched in most parts of the world. Energy is not botched the way it is here. Like Pakistan is generating extremely expensive, extremely expensive fossil fuel energy, whereas renewable energy is so much cheaper. Obviously, it's better for the environment. We know that. But like it's also so much cheaper. So from an economic standpoint, um, it doesn't make sense either. Uh, neither does our agricultural system. So anyway, my father-in-law recognized that agriculture for a country with a growing population, we're now at 230 million people, expected to be 350 million people in as early as 15 years. That's massive. Um, and because of that, food security is already a really pressing issue. The country has to import uh, a lot of food. And now there's a lot of focus on, on food security. And for the first time over the past few months, the government is really focusing on agriculture. And it's changed the conversation. Industrialists are getting involved. They're getting ag lands. So Pakistan has a very fractured uh, agricultural land holding. So it's mostly really small landholders. The average land holding is less than five uh, acres. And that's for uh, you know, that, that's the case for more than 90% of farmers in the country. Um, so it's very hard to buy ag land and just, you know, agglomerate it. It's not really possible. So what the government has done is that they've opened up lands in the Cholistan Desert and uh, and said that, uh, you know, and, and it's invited investors and industrialists, etc., to go and set up farms there using high efficiency irrigation only. Ocean Pakistan is really important because the country uses flood irrigation. 91 to 92 percent of Pakistan's water goes to agriculture, whereas the global average is 70 percent. Um, and uh, I believe that and we'll talk about water. I'm really glad you brought that up because how is it that in the desert we're able to do this farming? And I'll get to that. Um, Pakistan is a water abundant country that is physically facing water scarcity in its cities and many other parts because of chronic and pathetic water management. And we can be a water abundant country that becomes a major exporter of agriculture, ideally with value addition. And my thesis is that regenerative agriculture is the tool that allows you to do this. Pakistan is basically a semi-arid landscape, semi-arid to arid, right? Barring a few temperate forests in the very north and northeast of the country. So it does have an incredible diversity of biodiversity uh, with these incredible biomes. It has the most diverse biomes of any one country in the world. And despite being so narrow, it's vertically, it has all of the biomes. But the vast majority of the country is arid to semi-arid. And what that means is that it would look more like a Saudi Arabia um, much more like it if it did not have this great gift of the heavens, which is the rivers that flow in from the Himalayas, primarily the Indus River. And that is what brings life, and that's what allowed for the oldest civilization in the world, the Indus Valley Civilization, to be formed there as well, thousands of years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, we are able to do and, and Oh, yes. And uh, another factoid that most people might not know is that the largest canal irrigation network in the entire planet exists in Pakistan. And this has been built up over, you know, 
technically thousands of years. It started with the Indus Valley civilization. And then, you know, over time, it was added onto it was an accretive process. The Mughal Empire um, built a lot of it. Then the British built a great deal of it. For them, it was colonial extraction, getting the cotton grown so it could be exported to Manchester, where the mills were. Um, and then uh, when Pakistan was created as an independent country in the 1960s with World Bank funding, that canal system was even further expanded. There were dam systems that were built. Um, and so we are able to farm in the desert also because of this canal irrigation system. So we are legally allotted a certain amount of water. It's, this is water from the Indus River. And there's a canal that connects the Indus River to the Chenab River. And our land is located on uh, on this canal. So we draw a little bit of uh, a certain amount of water from that canal. And then we also draw water from the underground aquifers for our center pivots, strip irrigation systems in our orchards, and for our sprinkler systems in the sprinkler zones, impractical sprinkler zones. And um, this was sort of happening anywhere, going to happen anyway, had I not joined. So my mandate, as I saw it, was how can we de increase our water usage efficiency and reach a point where our water, where our soils become so spongy that we dramatically reduce the need for water. And to because is there an issue round, in in Pakistan, like everywhere else? Like, of course, I understand this works as long as the this meaning the full agriculture system and also going into the desert and increasing food security, etc., works as long as the river flows and not floods, which we've seen in the last decade. I think at least two that were global news, yes. and for sure there were more that we didn't see. Um, yes. So has that been? Like that conversation change as well, or has that been like, people starting to realize the river might not flow as we need it to be, either too much or too little? Is that, or is that, is that front of mind of, uh, like, so let's say the circles you, you talk to? The circles, I, well, I talk to many different circles. <laughs> uh, and the industrialists are going into the desert because you build a system there that might not yeah. have water in, in five to 10 years, yeah. which could be an issue. Exactly. So again, this circle, the economically powerful or better off, the educated upper middle classes, this circle now is very concerned about this because climate change is even compared to two years ago. So last year's floods really changed the conversation in Pakistan um, because the devastation they caused, the economic insecurity that they uh, caused has now meant that everybody's talking about climate change in these circles. Whereas, you know, I've been advocating this stuff for a long time. Uh, just side note, I had the great and profound privilege of being uh, uh, an advisor uh, to Pakistan's former climate change minister, Malik Amin Aslam, who came up with the 10 billion tree tsunami plan where Pakistan was planning to plant 10 billion trees and they planted about 2.6 billion or something in their short-lived government as well. Um, and it was the first time in the history of the country that a green growth plan was created, which I helped co-author with uh, His Excellency Malik Amin. And, um, you know, and in that we sort of, it was, uh, it was trying to build a regenerative economy before Tom Steyer made that use that term. So we preceded Tom Steyer, actually, in, in bringing that term to life, but we didn't get any sort of media buzz or attention for it. Because Shout out to gets. Tom and the family. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Um, so, um, you know, um, 
uh, so again, uh, as I mentioned a few years ago, nobody really cared. Um, and now everybody's talking about climate change solutions. Everybody's concerned about glacial melt because the problem is the glacial, uh, the glaciers in the Himalayas are melting at a very rapid clip. So a few decades from now, the amount of water that comes into the Indus River, the Chenab River, and all of these other five great rivers. So Punjab, the province literally means, Punj means five, Ab means, Ab is the Persian word for water. So it's literally the land of five rivers. It's technically six rivers, but, you know, five main rivers. Um, and so the rivers so are going to coming and, like up. knocking on your door now and saying, oh, we heard this like so soil sponge, like like that kind of thinking that is and drastically reducing and of course, not to zero. Nobody's saying we should, but like drastically improving your ability to withstand potential periods of way less and while producing a lot more or producing at least the same like is that a story that's now hitting that must hit like smart well-off industrialist uh, entrepreneurs they're like if that's true like i can go visit something if that's true that means just way better business regardless of the, the carbon piece regardless of can we bring back water cycles can we actually recharge the the, the glaciers can we make sure we get more rain or better um uh, better let's say structured rain etc that's a whole i think that's la la land for many people but like do you get more more people visiting more people knock on the door saying oh this this stuff that i've been hearing from you for a couple of years now actually now starts to click in place yes so people um who have farmland uh, of a reasonable scale who i meet they generally are extremely interested and they've started visiting us. So initially, you know, I also was not really talking about this stuff because I really wanted to have a very solid thesis and a showpiece ready. And as I mentioned, it was an iterative process and it took time. Now we sort of, I've really over the past six months dramatically or a year really dramatically increased the amount I'm talking about this stuff and we're starting to get media engagement in Pakistan on a small level now but I think it's going to only increase shout um, out to anybody a, listening in Pakistan we have a few I know but this is not going to get you the biggest media outreach I think you need there but we have a few people <laughs> listening so shout out to them no thank you every bit every bit helps um, I think one of the big things uh one of the very helpful things was I had the privilege of appearing on Pakistan's um, most listened to podcast. And this happened about four months ago, three to four months ago. And a lot of people really listened to that and then reached out to me. Um, and so I think things like these really matter. And now uh, a YouTube channel, which uh, a lot of farmers watch, it's probably the most watched YouTube channel by farmers in Pakistan. They want to do a documentary on us, uh, hopefully maybe in Jan or Feb. Um, and so stuff like that, I think, will really uh, push the needle. Um, and I think that that's, that's a good thing. That's what we want. We want to spread this. We want this thesis out there. But then we're thinking of how can we get it out there faster? One idea is, and that's a completely different can of worms, is can we build uh, an extension services app? Can we start up can we create a startup out of this? And that's something, a conversation that I'm having uh, with a couple of people um, because that could be game changer. My, one of my great, one of the great uh, problems I see in the world is that extension services all over the world have failed. And in developing countries, they're especially poor in most developing countries. Uh, and so if we can build 
an extension services system around an app or something where people can actually learn the bone in a very easy to understand way the bones of regenerative practices, where they should start, create an AI platform, people put in what kind of soils they have, what are they growing, how, you know, what kind of yields they're getting, what fertilizers are they applying. The AI can then tell them how they should start making changes to start generating alpha from season one. Because again, we cannot push regenerative organic from the get-go. That doesn't make sense. It has to be different shades of regenerative before it becomes regenerative organic, which is my beef with the ROC certification as well, because they want you to be organic certified and then go towards regenerative. That's the opposite. A farmer should be regenerative first and then become regenerative organic, in my humble opinion. And there's so many other places. Like, I, I feel this needs at least a part two at some point, uh, which will happen. But to ask a few questions we always love to to ask um and you as a listener know know they're coming let's say we're we're back in or you're back and i'm there as well in, in a theater in wall street we're back with uh, a group of financial minded people let's say or in in um, the financial capital of pakistan and we do this uh, live on stage what would be the main message to um, people that are managing their own money or other people's money um, what would be your main getaway? Like they, they walk out, of course, they're inspired, they're super excited, um, but we would like them to do something the next day. Um, what would be your main message you would like to, to what would be the, the seed you would like to plant in their head? Sorry, long way around to what would be the seed you would like to plant in their head? Right. I think that I'll have to break that, apart, uh, break that up because Wall Street is not just one thing. Uh, and, you know, and that seems pretty obvious. Um it depends who I'm speaking to, because if you're talking to a hedge, a group of hedge funders, their mandate and their mindset is very generally very short term, unless you're an engine number one or something. But that's really, um, you know, just a couple of there are just a couple of shops like that. Everybody else is extraordinarily short term focused. Let's say they're so longer, longer term, longer term focused, maybe managing family office money, managing certain uh, foundation money, managing your own wealth, which could be in buckets and portfolios in different um, uh, different return risk and also time perspectives. Um, but people that come to this because they're interested in, in regeneration at large, um, but maybe not as knowledgeable and haven't done gather rep down, haven't gone down the rabbit holes as, as you did, plus for sure haven't managed the farm um, or for sure, potentially, maybe they have in the family somewhere, some estates, etc. What would be the seed you would like to plant to the curious, but not yet um, fully on board? Absolutely. I think uh, absolutely. Asset managers, pension funds, these guys can be the heroes of our planet or one of the many heroes that we That's need. That's the first time somebody because, ever said that on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Because they have a much longer term horizon. And we're seeing this. I have friends, actually most of my friends are in the private equity hedge fund Wall Street space, especially my friends in the US. Um, because when I was in New York, you know, I met a lot of Pakistanis who were in that realm and people I clicked with ended up mostly being in that realm. And they keep sort of telling me that it's the LPs that are putting the pressure on them for incorporating ESG things. Many times the private equity folks are like, oh my God, a 15% re reduction in this aluminum um, uh, company that we just bought that seems really hard to do, but our LPs are pressurizing us, so we have to do it. How are we going to do it? Right? So LPs 
have enormous power. And I keep hearing stories like this. So the message I would give them is actually a message, uh, you know, is, is too pronged. The first is um, just incorporating true cost accounting because they have a much more long-term horizon uh, than any other investor. When they do that, and they've actually started to do that, I was reading an incredible Bloomberg piece yesterday, the European uh, carbon markets legislation that was just uh, passed with carbon taxes for imports, that is going to have ripple effects. So all the big asset managers have now started uh, incorporating that in their valuations and in their calculations, and that is going to be massive. And what other countries are going to be forced to now do carbon taxes because they don't want to pay those taxes to the EU because somebody is going to get that tax money. So it might as well be in your own country unless it's going to go to the EU, right? So Interesting. It can have, think about it that way. Yeah, yeah. You want yes, to keep it in, this in Pakistan, really you want to keep it in India. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. So it's going to have ripple impacts, and I really hope it will. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is a story of hope, and I think someone like Lombard Odier has taken with a chief, chief nature officer. They've really uh, sort of incorporated this already, but it needs to be much more industry-wide, which is the thesis that nature uh, is an incredible asset, loss and also that regenerating it is both very profitable and also can be very fast-paced. And so what they should definitely have is an in-house chief nature officer and a team under them. One of them should be a, an agriculture specialist who really understands this stuff. Uh, because it's one thing to read the high-level stuff, and this is how sort of we did learning by doing in many ways. Uh, and in the beginning, because I'd read all of this high level stuff and the studies and I knew that, oh, it's possible, but I didn't really know how to do it. And a lot of people I've come across in who are not doing the farming aspect, they, they uh, you know, know the thesis or at least some of it, they've read some of the books, the Judith Schwartz books and many others. And they're like, oh, this is totally possible, but they don't know how to do it. And you really me, have to have included, someone. No, let's not, yeah, I'm, I'm not mad. That's why. No, I mean, at this point, Definitely, yeah. Go to go to the land and and either do it yourself. You have the means and the flexibility and the time and the blood, sweat, and tears, or be very close to the cutting edge farmers that are doing this because that's where the cutting edge research is. That's the most exciting piece, like Jan was saying, um, and and you you quoted. That's where the most exciting people are now, like to figure that out. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so if they have that, uh, they, they'll become much better investors because when you're investing in a food company, a fiber company, um, or you're doing other smaller principal investments in these cutting edge nouveau biologicals companies, which I personally uh, sort of am quite obsessed with. Um, so uh, then you know what science, where the science is, what the science is. How is it practically going to be implemented? Does it even make sense? Let's say, for example, you are thinking of investing in a company that says, oh, we're going to treat the phosphorus fertilizer you're applying, and that will be that will reduce, I'm not going to take names, and that's going to reduce your phosphorus need on farm by 50%. But let's say there's another biologicals company that's saying, that look, you've got you've put phosphorus fertilizer for fifty years. You have two hundred years worth. A mineral assay shows that a farmer has 
200 years worth of phosphorus. And our biological solution, when we apply it to the soil, means that you have to apply zero phosphorus and still get super high yields. Obviously, which is a better investment, right? Which makes more sense, right? So you have to know the science. Uh, you have to know how practically uh, farming works at various scales, depending on different markets. Uh, and only then can you become a smart investor. So every asset manager has to have an agriculture specialist, in my humble opinion. And we, we've named him a few times, John Kempf, and this question is definitely inspired uh, by him. What do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't? So where in, well, it was difficult to say your bubble because you're part of different ones, as you already mentioned, but what do you believe to be true about, re true about Regenac? You mentioned a few things, but if you had to pick one, what would that be? Oh. So I'm not going to repeat, uh, you know, what John Kemp likes to say and many others as well, which is that you can have, with, by growing regenerative, you can have higher profitability and even yields from the first crop. What I would say is that I believe that inoculants, microbial inoculants, prebiotics, and perhaps even drones are essential for a transition to regenerative agriculture um, because they make everything much faster. Let's say a farmer wants to, uh, you know, realizes that Johnson's Soup Composting, which is a very easy system of composting, and for what you're getting, bang for buckwise, there's nothing better, um, is what I want to make. But it's going to take you a year gestation period, and you, first you're going to do a trial before you transition the entire farm. Before you build and the ones you you're building, these, which are gigantic. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what do you do for those two years? You have to get these inoculants and, you know, both probiotic and prebiotic. And that's just going to give you a result from crop number one. So it just makes perfect sense to do it. And drones are incredible because <laughs> some of these companies have engineered drones. So firstly, when drones came out, by the way, I was super opposed to it. I was like, oh, my God, yet another technology that's been added to agriculture that we don't really need. Uh, but I've now realized that foliar applications, both biological and others, are essential. It's an incredible nutrient delivery platform. And if you give biologically derived, reduced, uh, chelated, organically chelated nutrients in constant biology with inoculants, the results are mind-blowing. We, we have to unpack that sentence. Can you repeat that sentence in, in plain English? Because I'm, gonna, I'm not saying we're going to get emails, but I might. So let's do that. In I, I get your um, thesis of, of course, the spraying drones we've seen. You can use them much more wisely. And we've actually talked about it. Um, with with John Kempf as well, not not on the drone side, but like how important foliage is. Like you spray on the leaves at a certain moment, a certain time, it's much more efficient, or it has a different effect than spraying soil or the drip irrigation. Or and and of course, if you don't have to do that with a super heavy tractor, that makes a lot of sense uh, for multiple places. But that sentence you said of what particular? Can you walk us through that one just to just sure, to get absolutely. us up to speed? With with great pleasure. So first, just to add one more thing about drones, it's not just that you're compacting by bringing the tractors in as well. That's obviously really bad. The other great thing about drones is that you end up using a lot less product and water because these new drones, such as the DJI uh, drones. So DJI has created an ag drone arm as well, by the way. Every, most people know DJI as like consumer drones, Make affordable, really high microphones as well. 
I'm, I'm a fan. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Incredible. So they've come up with the best, they're considered the best ag drones in the world, to my knowledge, at least from the research I've done. And the nozzles are designed in such a way that the droplet side, size is really, really tiny, which uh-huh. is ideal because you're able to get much higher penetration of whatever product you're applying into the leaf surface, the phylosphere. And the other thing is, and, and they're engineered in a way with airflow that they really quote, not just the top of the leaf surface, but the bottom as, as well. Wow. And the bottom is where 90% of your uh, stomata is. So that's actually where you need the product to be for the highest absorption chances. So the science of drones from a delivery point of view is incredibly compelling. And this is um, not the Amazon delivery, people just don't. Like this is delivery of way <laughs> yeah. more important stuff to way more important beings. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then now coming to... Yeah, exactly. So drones could be a massive game changer. And the good news is because a lot of people will be like, oh, this is great for rich farmers or relatively wealthy farmers with large land holdings. And yes, those farmers should have their own drones. But even in a country like Pakistan, which is behind the curve of cutting edge agriculture and other things, um, there are actually companies with DJI drones offering services to small farmers, drone as a service, which is fantastic. They're doing it more for pesticide applications and now for biostimulants because biostimulants have started to inch their way into the Pakistani market, courtesy of Cortiva and Syngenta, because as you know, they've bought Valagro and they've bought um, Simborg and so on. And because of their buying spree, they now have these incredible biologicals, which by the way, you know, in some ways it's really bad from a monopoly, oligopoly point of view, but from a market penetration to developing countries, it actually is good because nobody else is doing it. These people already have a footprint. They're able to bring really cost-effective biologicals uh, to developing country markets um, in ways that other players probably won't. Um, like, I've been trying to get AEA into Pakistan for a while, but it's really difficult, um, right? And it's really expensive. Um, so, anyway, that's a side point. The now, coming to your... Advancing eco-agriculture. Like just exactly, to, um, yes. com- Coming back to the sentence. Yes. So, nutrients have to be... Um, well, ideally organically derived. Those are generally the best type of nutrients. Um, but that's not always the case. Um, the second most important thing is that, actually even more important than that, is that they have to be in a reduced form. So here we're going to quickly talk about oxidation reduction. Um, so most people are familiar with pH. Um, what some of the science, and John Kempf talks about this a lot, and Olivier Husson is the scientist who's done the most cutting-edge work on this. Um, so EH is the other great, really important thing. In some ways, it's even more important than pH, and that is basically oxidation reduction. And briefly, I'll talk about this from a human health point of view because that's very easy for people to understand. When things get oxidized, generally, while that's important for different processes, they also get used up or destroyed. Think about uh, a metal that rusts because it gets oxidized and then over time it sort of withers away. And that's what happens in our body as well, which is why antioxidants that we eat, they're basically reducing agents. So on a scale, you have oxidation and then the opposite of that is reduction, just like you have acidic and the opposite of that is alkaline. And so what's happened in the world is that our soils, in Pakistan, we have highly alkaline, calcareous, highly alkaline soils. And that's really bad from a productivity point of view. In Africa, you have the opposite problem. You have really acidic soils, again, really bad from a productivity point of view. You want soils to be neutral. 
and biology usually is the buffer that does that biology plus carbon. But um, the other great problem with both of these soil types is that they're extremely oxidized. This, the you know the inter the interaction of the sun and the oxygen has destroyed and depleted these soils, made them super oxidized, and that is really bad. You want reduced soils, and we also want our nutrients to be in a reduced form for higher efficacy and absorbability. Um, and that's why reducing them is really important before you deliver them. And then to, because if you reduce them and you don't chelate them, then the reduction gets lost. And as soon as they're applied, the oxygen is in the air, they get oxidized. So even before the leaf will absorb them or if it's soil applied, it gets, uh, you know, before it gets absorbed by the soil or by the roots, um, it's going to get oxidized. So you have to chelate it to preserve it in that sort of state. Now, with chelation, I would just like to quickly point out that, uh, you know, there are a lot of synthetically chelated products out there. All the big fertilizer companies and small fertilizer companies are making them. But the synthetic chelating agents are really, really bad. Um, because, so let's Is take it something like a like layer EDTA. on top of, like, what do you mean by chelating? Like, as a verb, but what, what right. does it do to liquid? Right. So, um, on a chemistry level, so it comes from the Greek term. I think it means like crab claw. It sort of holds that uh, that molecule in place, and you you need certain chemical compounds to do the chelation for whatever compound you're trying to chelate. Right? Let's say it's a magnesium or iron uh, nutrient, or it's a copper uh, nutrient, whatever it is. Um, usually, it's done for metallic nutrients, by the way. So molybdenum, zinc, iron, copper, manganese, magnesium. Um, and what happens is that the synthetic chelating agents like EDTA, EDTH, etc., they're really, really strong. What happens is that when this molecule go, goes inside the plant, the EDTA will let go so that the plant can absorb, let's say, that nutrient, let's say the iron uh, uh, fertilizer you applied. But then it's so strong, it needs to attach itself or latch on to some other compound. Usually it goes for calcium. And what happens is that there's a calcium uh, deficiency that can be caused in a plant. And calcium is a secondary macronutrient. By the way, it's not even a micronutrient. It is essential for plant growth and high productivity and performance. And, and so synthetic chelates are really bad from that point of view. So they're organic chelates agents as well, certain organic acids. Um, and there's been a lot of cutting-edge science that's happened over the past decade on organic chelating agents. All of advancing eco-agriculture products, by the way, are organically chelated, which is why they're so effective. They're reduced and then organically chelated. And then if you apply them at the right time uh, via foliar, the effects are incredible, right? So this is all, by the way, science I've learned from John Kempf. Um, I consider him a great teacher of mine. And uh, I think he's one of those revolutionary and game-changing people in the modern world. Uh, one of those unrecognized people, by, uh, a sort of giants, um, aside from you know a very small sort of community like people like you and I and, and others. So, um, so anywho, uh, this science is revolutionary. It's mind-blowing and it's game-changing. Um, so that's what I meant by ideally organically derived nutrients that are reduced and then organically chelated before delivery. Thank you so much for that that explanation. And then to, to finish up with two questions, which could be other rabbit holes, um, but we'll see, um, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with them when we get there. Um, what would you do if you had a billion dollars to to invest? Because I'm, I'm guessing you have an, 
uh, with your background and interesting answer to that? Um, in my very humble opinion, I think that with a billion dollars, that's a lot of money. I could potentially start a revolution to change the world of agriculture. Um, and what I would do is I would create a an investment company that invests in world-class regenerative nutrient and biologicals company, uh, companies. And, um, so you would go for the input side? The input side, because it's not just biologicals. A lot of biologicals you can make on farm. Regenerative nutrients are also essential. You need very tiny amounts, by the way. This is not like a super fertilizer heavy, but what sort of AEA has proven is that the right form of nutrients in the right quantities, microdosing at the right time, make and delivered in the right way. So things like foliars or right timing in the soil, those are essential. And so regenerative, what I call regenerative nutrients, which as I mentioned, organically derived, organically chelated, reduced, those nutrients um, are essential. So I would invest in regenerative nutrients and biological companies because the transition, as I already, to answer your, uh, when I answered your earlier question, I think inoculants and prebiotics are also essential um, to help that transition happen much faster. Um, and then as, uh, you know, for a lot of biologicals, I think farmers can do on-farm solutions over time. It just makes perfect sense for the biology side to be handled mostly on-farm. But the nutrient side, you still might need to buy a few products here and there. Um, and so that's what I would do. And then I would roll these. So I would create micro factories that are country scale in every sort of starting country by country. So in, starting in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, you know, countries like that. And then I would make this firm uh, sign the 1% for the planet pledge. I would also create a nonprofit and the profits from this company would feed or 1% of the revenues would feed that nonprofit whose job would be twofold. One is to educate farmers on how to do regeneration. So in some ways, the extension question that I broached earlier, and also ideally uh, an ancillary part of that nonprofit would be in every country that they operate in to have to create an infrastructure that makes it affordable for farmers to plant more and more trees. Trees are a big part of the solution to well, all global problems, obviously, you have interviewed so many amazing people about the biotic pump theory and fixing our water cycles. And farmland can be a crucial part of that because, you know, and I'll share some pictures with you. Um, when I drive through rural Pakistan, I see opportunities galore because 80 to 85 percent of farmland does not really have trees. They might have a tree or tree here and there. And the boundaries, even a two-acre farmer can plant trees on the boundary. And if you do it cleverly, you can have tiny trees that can style. provide you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, tiny forest style or just even uh, not monoculture, but like single trees yeah. in, the, in yeah. the regular planted way. Because I think tiny forests are important, but that will be a small part of a farmland. So a two-acre farm will have like maybe one 30-square-meter tiny forest. Uh, but then the other boundaries can be other trees. Because in a tiny forest, you can't do harvesting. You can't harvest for deciduous trees. You know, the leaves are just going to fall on the ground. You can't really harvest them to make your Johnson Sioux compost, for example, right? Uh, similarly, you can't do harvesting of uh, fertilizer leaves, for example, a moringa tree to create uh, your own biostimulants. So, for example, on our farm, we've planted a 
very intense moringa plantation and aloe vera to make our own biostimulants. Um, so, you know, those are the things that farmers can do as well, right? So that would be the other part of what this nonprofit would do, which is to help fa- make it accessible for farmers to provide them seeds or saplings on the cheap. So because it's a nonprofit, it doesn't need to make a profit for this. And in developing countries, usually doing these things is is much cheaper. And so that would really kickstart uh, revolution. Um, and sort of, and that's the, and there's an economic thesis in terms of the micro factories that are being built for regenerative nutrients and biologicals, which I think would be extremely profitable. And then as a final, I mean, you know, this one's coming. What would you do if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing overnight? What would that be? I think I have to agree with, that's not going to be my answer, but I do want to reiterate that had, um, uh, you know, the uh, gentleman from Germany, the VC, uh, I forget his Jan name, uh, Schultz. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, Gisbert, yeah. So he, um, I, I think he was bang on. True cost accounting will change the entire world. It won't just change agriculture. If you have bake in true cost accounting into every single uh, accounting framework, it just changes everything. It changes valuations. It drives the entire economy towards bio-based circularity. And that includes agriculture as a subset of the global economy, right? Um, so that's a no-brainer. But, I, you know, because he's already given that answer, <laughs> um, and this is, you know, this would have been my answer even if I hadn't listened to that podcast episode, uh, but he's obviously bang on. Because that's not my answer, I would, I'll give you another answer. And this will be more agriculture specific. I would, you know what, actually it wouldn't be agriculture specific. I would my answer would be on the education side of things. I would make it mandatory with this magic wand that every child in the world, in school, starting from you know kindergarten or grade one, learns about human health and nature, ecosystems, ecology, and on a level, obviously, that they can understand depending on their grade. I think that would also change the world. It would change how we see things. Because understanding, you know, human health, I mean, we're not taught basic things. Uh, For example, I have some family members who've been suffering from inflammatory issues. So I've gone down a lot of human health rabbit holes as well. And it was a great Dr. Mark Hyman quote I, uh, or, or, or post I read the other day about the importance of magnesium in our diet. And in order to, so, you know, of course you have high foods that are high in magnesium, like pumpkin seeds and so many others, but then for the body to absorb that absorb magnesium, it, yeah. you need other, you need other enzyme cofactors, lo and behold, other nutrients, you need your B vitamins, you need vitamin D, etc. right? Mm-hmm. Understanding this, and this is something easily a sixth grader can understand if you you know, uh, teach it the right way. That dot connection means that they will start connecting so many other dots all around them. And similarly, an understanding overview of how ecology works, how a forest works, where do nutrients come from, how are soils built, how do the water cycles work, um, you know, the plants build the soil and vice versa. So it's a mutualistic relationship, right? Um, and then they also end up creating their own water, um, you know, so another mutualistic relationship. So it's these series of mutualisms that's what drives our planet. Um, so I think 
just understanding that uh, if children children have that understanding, then everything they do in life, whether they become doctors, whether they become engineers, whether they become entrepreneurs, that's going to stay with them. And everything they craft or investors, everything or they craft in their lives or farmers, exactly, is going to be impregnated with that philosophical disposition. I think it's a perfect moment to end this conversation. I think we could go and we'll do that at another time and down another 10 rabbit holes. But I want to be conscious of your time, uh, conscious of the listener's time. And um, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope to do this in person uh, somewhere soon and somewhere, uh, let's say, on the land. Walking the land would be absolutely amazing. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for uh, going down and deep down these rabbit holes and, and doing it in practice on the land. And um, I was going to was not going to say shouting about it, but shouting about it, not only on this podcast, which is obviously the in-crowd, um, but also on the biggest podcast in Pakistan, the biggest YouTube channel for farmers, because uh, that's, um, and in the captains of industry and in the political sphere, uh, because that's like the attention is there. Now we need to uh, put it to work. That's why I asked the one billion question. So thank you so much for the work you do and coming here to spend a few hours with us to share. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do as well, by the way. It's been extraordinarily inspirational for me in my own journey, by the way. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.